Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Daniel Schreider, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for military affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Charlton Clark about men in therapy. Later, I will be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week and Vita, who has been helping people with transportation needs in El Paso County for the past 50 years. Our show is brought to you by Family Care Center, the community's leading provider in outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you are looking for individual counseling counseling couples, management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you will find what you need with the Family Care Center. Take time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and yours. As always, it would be great to hear feedback or thoughts about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Share them with us by dropping an email to all one word, military mind at fccsprings.com. Today's interview segment is with Charlton. Let's get into that conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So it's always fascinating to hear how people, much like yourself, come into the field of clinical mental health. I'm interested in hearing more about your background and the work that you've done, especially in regards to combat veterans, disaster victims, and abuse survivors. Okay. Well, I think like a lot of therapists, I came into the field because I had a really good experience with therapy. So grew up, had a bit of a chaotic childhood. And so originally... I was going to be a pastor. And um, so when I was in school, though, I started really searching my heart about what I really wanted to do, what I was really passionate about. And at the time, I was actually going through counseling myself for the first time, dealing with issues that I had struggled with my whole life, which included depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I started doing some of that soul searching, I realized I don't really want to be a pastor, I think I want to be a counselor. So I changed my path and started going into the mental health field. And I think from there, that's when getting into working with with men, anger issues, 
trauma, PTSD, those kinds of things. That came as I progressed through the mental health field and and I began to meet different clients that came to me. I can't say that it was a, I was targeting that. I think it just <laughs> happened over time. And so that's, that's really kind of how, in some ways I feel like I sort of stumbled into the mental health field, uh-huh. um, but, but it was really prompted, I think, because I had been through therapy and was in therapy and was seeing just how powerful it was and how healing it was for my own life. So I thought, wow, I want to be able to how can I do this for other people? Yeah, that's fascinating. And like yourself, I said, the, the counseling field found me. I didn't right. find it, right? And right. it sounds like you also found your clients the same way. I, I they think They kept finding you. It wasn't yeah. you def- necessarily searching out for them. I, I hear that story a lot when I talk to therapists. I, I don't know a ton of people in the field that have said, like, I knew I wanted to be a therapist from the time I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. I haven't experienced that. It's mostly people have gone into the field because of their own story and walking their own journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you, I did the ministry route first and right. was seeing counseling after getting out of the military. Right. And it was during those sessions at Nazarene Bible College that I started thinking, well, wait a minute. And they said, yeah. what do you think about counseling? I said, well, yeah. let's give it a try. Yeah. And I've been in love with the field ever since. So, yeah. um, so can you speak more on your professional background? So you started in, was it Kentucky? No, I actually started in Florida. Okay. I, I was at a small private practice in Florida and then moved to Colorado Springs in 2008 and began a private practice. And in my private practice, um, I was sort of amazed again, how you said, you know, the the clients find you. I started having a lot of trauma victims that were being referred to me. And it was in working with these trauma victims that I realized that my skill set was sort of hitting a ceiling. I didn't have, there was a piece I was missing because we were talking a lot about people's trauma and it wasn't bringing the relief that I was wanting for my clients. So I had a supervisor at the time and they told me, you know, you need to, you need to study or, or learn how to do EMDR. And I was like, what is EMDR? Any EMDR and folks can Google it, but it stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's a type of intervention that literally helps a trauma victim or a, someone who has PTSD literally get a second chance to process those events and move the trauma from one side of the brain to the other. And in doing that, it helps reduce a lot of the fight or flight experiences that people have, even after they've experienced the trauma years and years later. Mm -hmm. So that's when I kind of got into the whole EMDR trauma recovery work. I also, when I started doing counseling, I started wanting to work with guys like me. So I grew up, no dad, when I was growing up, experienced a lot of anxiety, depression, like I said, a lot of anger as well. And so I started wanting to work with, with guys and I saw, you know, there's a lot of guys that have those issues. And so especially anger and in the the topic of anger for men is 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 the top right like that's right. that's something that a lot of men experience i'm not saying it's just a male issue but mm-hmm. there are a lot of guys where they experience anger and so i started wanting to help guys work through their anger and figure out good coping skills and understand the roots of their anger because anger is not doesn't just come out of nowhere there's always roots to anger and so helping them kind of look at what is going on 
you know, why are you getting so angry? What about this situation keeps triggering your anger? And what's it going to look like to do that different? So I also started working with teenage guys because teenage guys are usually pretty angry. They tend to be. And I just found I had a good rapport with teenagers. You know, I, I don't go about trying to fix a teenager. I don't come into a situation thinking like, well, this teenager is broken and I need to fix them. I really would take the approach of trying to listen and hear and understand them and then help them learn to categorize and communicate their emotions as effectively as possible in the hopes that it was going to help improve their relationship with their parents, help them at school, those kinds of things. So kind of jumping back to the whole trauma recovery, you know, when you start getting into that field, you're going to come across folks who have sexual abuse, you know, in their history, combat history. You know, here in Colorado, we've had two major fires that people lost their homes. People thought they were going to to die. I remember one time I had a client that was telling me about having to escape their neighborhood that was in the path of the fire. And so, you know, these are when you're in the trauma recovery business, you're going to come across all of that. And then as of late, when I came on staff with Family Care Center, I got to really focus on working with veterans. And that's been in military folks. And that has been an absolute privilege to work with folks and help them, you know, work through some of these, these issues so that they can have more fulfilling lives. That's, I can't imagine doing work that's any more valuable than that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I appreciate your take on trauma. Like you talked about escaping the neighborhood. A lot of times someone on the outside might be like, that's not really a traumatic event. You just leave, right? Right. But when there's a fire coming and there's something major coming and the other piece of it is is it's something that you didn't expect, right? right? You didn't expect to have to flee from your neighborhood to save your own life and possibly release animals. So yeah, I've always said that trauma... I, I think a lot of times part of the biggest part of trauma is that you weren't ready for it. You weren't prepared for it. It came up from behind and, and that feeling of I wasn't ready. I had no idea this was going to happen. I was not prepared for that is what leads to a lot of the hypervigilance or that having to feel like you're always on guard. That is a big part of PTSD. And so when you work with with folks that have been in combat, you know, so often the, the attacks they went through were not expected. I mean, they they're over there. They expect to be in combat. But still, when you're when you're taken off guard or something happens unexpectedly, that's a huge part of trauma that then makes our brain want to stay on guard all the time, because then our brain is like, that's never going to happen again. Right. Never going to let you be off guard again, buddy. And that's when sometimes our brain is not always helping us out. It's like, okay, (laughs) I appreciate this, but. Right. Like let's, we got to dial it down because find that I, you know, switch every right. once in a I'm while. Not, so we I'm can not get some there rest. anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you also mentioned working with teenagers and your approach to coming into mm-hmm. kind of meeting them where they're at, right? right. Instead of coming in with this mentality of fixing right. them. Do you think that currently there's a cultural, I would say almost a break between generations, right? Like it seems like, gen, it seems like uh, adolescents in this day and age, they get to this point in their life and everyone's like, oh, well, they're, they're pretty much adults, especially with the technology, right? They're right. advancing a lot faster. They can speak like an adult. Sure. But the processing and the development hasn't happened at that sure. point. So, yeah, you know, I'm a parent and I have a teenager and I have one that's going to be a teenager in a month. And so I have a real heart for parents because parenting teens isn't easy. You've gone from micromanaging somebody's life for over a decade to now that's not going to work anymore. Teenagers are not going to be micromanaged. They don't want to be micromanaged. And so now you got to figure out a new way 
to guide and lead kids that doesn't feel suffocating. And so not only is the teenager transitioning, right, going from a child to a young adult to eventually a, you know, a full grown adult, the parents are transitioning and going from, well, I've been raising a child this way and now I have to change my approach because the phrase I told you so doesn't work in the teenage years. <laughs> doesn't matter how loud you say it. Doesn't matter if you're going to throw something when you say it. It doesn't really work. Right. For the most part. And so that's where you have to parents are, are transitioning and learning as well. So you've got two people <laughs> that mm-hmm. whose entire relationship is shifting and neither of them has done it before. Right. And so it is going to be a mess. The, the teenagers trying to individuate, become their own person. And a lot of times the way they do that is to say, like, you don't know what you're talking about, mom and dad. <laughs> right. And then the parents are like, wait a minute, you've never talk to me this way before and they feel stuck, that's when you get the fireworks. But if you start learning to help teenagers communicate and you start helping parents understand the shift in the in the strategies that have to take place, I think you can see some real work, good work that takes place. I think too, COVID has been really hard on teenagers. Absolutely. I think being separated from one another, being at school, being up and down, we're in school, we're out of school, we're online, we're not, we're back. A lot of my teenage clients, that was really, really difficult for them. And so I think, you know, we, we have a group of, of young teens right now that have just been through this pandemic. And I think may have had the worst of it, in my opinion, because they're going through this tremendous transitional stage in their life and they're doing it in the midst of unprecedented circumstances where they're being isolated. And you and I both know that one of the worst things that can happen for a human being is to be isolated. Absolutely. They call it solitary confinement as a punishment for a reason. Yeah. Right. And so, so it, w- there's a lot of work that I think is still yet to be done. And, and so I feel for both sides, right? I have a heart for both the parents and the teens. And, and I, think I can say that both from professional and personal experience. Right. So, you know, I look at my teenager and I go, man, he is, he is really transitioning and this is a tough time in life. And I remember what that's like. And then I'm also the parent and I'm like, what is happening right now? And I have a, and I have a master's in counseling. And sometimes I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. I'm qualified for this. Why am I struggling? I feel like on paper I'm qualified, but clearly I don't think I feel like I know what I'm doing. So, um, but and so you mentioned working with teenagers and the parents. And, mm-hmm. and is that usually something that you do? Because I know mm-hmm. in my own past, I've, I've dealt with people and they're like, well, everyone needs to get worked on. And I said, well, there's a component that even if you get to the teenager, him communicating better with his parents can start to heal that relationship without right. necessarily so. Yeah, I think the best work with teenagers usually involves, at least at times, bringing the parents in. So bringing them into the session? Or at least having times where you touch base with them and tell them what's going on, connect with them, tell them here's what we've been working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's probably not as often as when you're working with little, little kids, right? But I do think it's important. And then I think, you know, if a parent is struggling with their teenager, I would encourage them, like, don't just send your teenager to counseling, like go to counseling too. We've got, as in this culture, we've got to get over this idea that counseling or mental health is something that has a stigma on it, right? Like, I mean, nobody's like, oh, that's so weird. You're going to get a massage or, oh, that's so weird that you're going to the chiropractor, right? right? No, nobody, there's no stigma with that. Why would you, why would there be stigma on helping your, your heart and your mind and your soul? Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me, just it, it's that's got to go away. We've got to make counseling very, very normal. 
Yeah. And I appreciate that comment. And actually, when I was reading some of your material, you talked about how difficult it is for people to come to counseling, especially young 100%. people. And and your comment was, I want to honor that. I want to honor that courage that it took yes. for them and meet them where they're at and bring them into it and help them understand that. Yeah. I always try to help my clients understand that I feel like one of my professors back in school used to say, he would say, when you're walking in someone's story, you're walking on sacred ground. He would punctuate that phrase all the time. This mm-hmm. is sacred ground. So I never take it for granted, or I try not to take it for granted that I'm walking on sacred ground when I'm talking with people and they're sharing some of the the most painful parts of their life or some of the things that they feel like, oh my gosh, I, I can never tell this to anyone. So I try to always honor that courage that it takes to, because there's still a stigma in our culture, yeah. you know, that if you're getting therapy, man, something must be really wrong. And, and so, but it's also just difficult to talk about these things. Even if it's, there's no stigma at all, it's still not an easy process to be like, let me unpack some of the most painful things in my story. So I try not to take that for granted and, and help them understand that I, I will often tell them I feel honored. Yeah, I feel honored you would share that with me. Yeah, because absolutely. I do. I, I, I'm not saying that to be nice. I really do mean it. I believe it. Yeah. And I, and I really appreciate that perspective. I know that Family Care Center and hundreds of other organizations are in the community mm-hmm. uh, advocating for mental health and trying absolutely. to break down the walls that these stigmas have yeah. caused both in the community and, you yeah. know, inside subcultures like veterans, you know, the military. Right. It's, of course. It's, it's just amplified, right? Um, but great work's been done and great work is continuing to be done to break down those walls and to Absolutely. get people the services wherever they're at, whether yep. they're in the community, still active duty veterans, mm-hmm. um, children of veterans. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you mentioned a little bit on uh, EMDR, and I appreciate you giving the full name there uh, mm-hmm. to help folks out. Uh-huh. Um, but can you expand a little bit on what that looks like in conjunction with kind of standard psychotherapy, talk therapy, like how that works together? Sure. So I had the good fortune of being trained by a guy named Dr. John Hartung, who I jokingly call him Obi-Wan. He always laughs at me when I say that, but I'm like, he really is sort of like a sage. He trains a lot of folks in our community and across the world, actually, in the intervention of EMDR. And so what he explained and helped me understand is that on the left side of your brain towards the front is where most trauma gets stuck in the brain and it's called emotional memory. On the other side of the brain towards the back is something called narrative memory. That's where you normally what would happen is you would experience a a difficult situation. It would process through the brain and end up in narrative memory where I can remember it, but it doesn't trigger these autonomic nervous system, that fight or flight reactions to things where I feel anxious or nervous or I can't sleep or I'm irritable or I'm jumpy, right? But lots of times what happens is trauma gets stuck. It doesn't go through the brain the way it's supposed to. Now, our capacity for verbal speech is on the opposite side of the brain of where the trauma gets stuck. Sometimes there is trauma that you could talk about and talk about and talk about, but because it's on the other side of the brain, it's not going to necessarily impact where that trauma is stuck Mm -hmm. in the brain. So EMDR using what's called bilateral stimulation. I use these paddles that vibrate back and forth in people's hands. And that's something that simple can stimulate both sides of the brain while they reprocess the memory or talk about painful memory. And that helps stimulate both sides of the brain and sort of creates this bridge for the trauma to essentially cross over to where it needs to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it, it kind of sounds complicated and and it would probably be good for listeners to look it up and and, because I'm probably not doing hard tongue justice. And, but I'm, it really 
is, I would say, in terms of trauma can oftentimes be even more powerful than talking about it. Just talking about it oftentimes isn't enough to help someone have that trauma move along and not trigger them on a regular basis. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And for, for those listening, I wish they could see your hands moving from one side of the brain to the right. other. I think that would have helped. I have, but... a, I have a face <laughs> for radio, not television. So <laughs> they can, yeah, they can Google it and, and they'll see there's lots of great, you know, images that kind of depict it. So you'll do that EMDR or those EMDR mm-hmm. sessions in mm-hmm. conjunction with your yeah, uh, lot, therapy. Yeah. Sessions. Lots of times if, I, if someone comes in and sometimes they specifically want EMDR, because mm-hmm. they've done talk therapy and it really hasn't put a dent in what they're experiencing. So we'll just focus on EMDR and we'll do that. Um, I mean, of course I talk with them, get some background. Oh, I don't, I don't absolutely. jump right into the EMDR in the first session. We do some prep sessions, but yeah, I found that I've had clients where we've done some EMDR and they've really kind of gotten over that hump in terms of the trauma. And then they start doing now that that has been moved along and sort of put to rest, so to speak, then they can start working on all the other things using talk therapy. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yep. So it's, it's a good, it, it can be a really good one to punch, to be honest, when it comes to someone's struggles. Yeah. And we were actually, I was having a conversation some with someone last night about kind of being in the golden age of therapy mm-hmm. and the, and the knowledge that we have now. And, it's, it's and like really you explained phrase, yeah, the paths that we can take, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have so many more tools in the toolbox. Absolutely. Um, and to combine those with therapy is, is really a powerful mixture and it can be like you said, front end in the middle mixed together yep, absolutely. on the back end, you know, someone who's absolutely. experienced a lot of therapy. So, so earlier you talked about, uh, anger and I tried like, it was something that I've worked a lot with, mm-hmm. especially because most of my clients are males too. And I, right. and I always joke with them. I say anger is like our default emotion. And you also mentioned when you were younger about the anxiety and the depression. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see in your work that sometimes, you know, cause you talked about the root cause, like finding that root and pulling that out. So you're not actually directly addressing the anger, but what's causing the anger. And do you think that sometimes that's a shield? A hundred percent agree. So I used to, I used to draw a diagram for my clients where I would have these layers. And I would say the first layer is our rage. You know, when I say anger is not always a bad thing, right? Some mm-hmm. anger is, is justified, righteous. Like there are things in this world that we should be angry about, right? See a little kid get hurt, deserves anger, right? When I talk about, when I think people are really struggling with anger, it's a lot of times it's actually more rage, the outbursts, like yelling, screaming, throwing things, you know, whatever the case may be. And I think to your point, Lots of times I do believe that's the very first layer. That is the the emotion or the experience that we can go to that is the least vulnerable for us, especially as guys. And we live in a culture where you're not masculinity is like sort of synonymous with like, don't be vulnerable. Never let them see you cry. Right. So that I think you're absolutely spot on when you say that that is a shield. So then I would say then what's underneath that are other emotions, Mm -hmm. feeling powerless, feeling rejected, feeling hurt, feeling alone, feeling disrespected. Okay. I would say that's, so then we would start to look at like, what else are you feeling underneath all of this anger slash rage slash frustration? And then I would say there's even maybe another layer in there under all those other emotions, which are sort of these, what I might say are core insecurities. Do I have what it takes? Am I worth it? Does anybody care about me? Am I valuable? those types of things. So what I found is, especially with young, with guys, is they had early experiences where they felt like they were rejected, told they 
were a loser or weak or something like that, right? And so they they believed that at their core something was deeply wrong or off for them. And then this is where, you know, they would feel these other these emotions and then they would have to shield that because of those we can't you're a guy you can't share these things you can't talk about these things so then they would put the anger around it plus when you're losing your stuff and you're raising your voice people will often become at a quote unquote safe distance they're not going to get close to you they're not they're going to be like whoa this dude is okay all right okay you know and so sometimes i think we use it as a way to not only shield ourselves but to kind of put people at arm's length because i don't want you to hurt me right. you're not going to get close enough to hurt me if i'm blowing my stack here does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of layers that are underneath anger and there's a lot of depth that i think is underneath anger and if you can start to start dig down into those and start looking at those what I found is that then the anger would dissipate as sort of a byproduct of that work. And what kind of therapeutic approaches do you take to get to that? Because I know with trauma, mm -hmm. EMDR, mm -hmm. what kind of approaches do you take to kind of break through those barriers, well, especially with teenagers? Sure. Well, a lot of that, I think, is is more client centered. You know, even, you know, if you use like fancy words like Rogerian, like I'm going to like you said, I'm going to meet you where you're at. Right. We're going to explore the dynamics. You know, I, I, I think I have what is what is referred to as an object relations type perspective, which is your early experiences in life shape your views of other people, yourself, relationships, those kinds of things. So a lot of it is just walking back through trying to help the client unpack. Well, tell me what that was like. What, what, what was the message you heard when you had that experience with this person or when you were in that situation? And I think helping them explore and, you know, sometimes it's like being a tour guide. It's like walking through and being like, well, what do you, let's look over here. You know, what, tell me what you think you see over there, you know, and what, what, what do you think that was about? And what did you start to believe about yourself based on that? You know, and so it's a lot of just sort of walking alongside of them, asking questions, helping them sort of take stock and look at things in a way that's like, hey, there's, there's no judgment here. We're going to look at this and try to understand how all of this shaped the way you're doing life, not because we're looking for villains to, you know, hold accountable necessarily and pin it on mom and dad or anything, but mostly like we got to understand the history so that we can try to figure out where we're going from here. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that perspective. And yeah, you're right. There's all sorts of big terms to, right. to, to explain us showing up and just being present right. with somebody. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at all these medical. There's words. a lot of fancy terms <laughs> in therapy. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But uh, two things that uh, were really stood out to me was was kind of being that tour guide going back mm -hmm. in the past and kind of nonchalantly drawing attention to those doors that they've closed right like that's really important to hey can you just break that down for me you know and right. then in them breaking it down they're starting to see the answer right and then it's more of a self-discovery which is really empowering right Absolutely. it's not you saying hey this is what's going on yeah um and then the other part is the belief about the event i think that that to me when i kind of discovered that in my own mm -hmm. therapeutic journey you're right it was easy to talk about trauma. I could tell stories all day long, mm -hmm. but I wasn't connecting the two. And then it was more when we went to my childhood that I would talk about the event. And, and I was thinking about it earlier. Sometimes you can sit with someone discussing trauma and they'll be smiling or laughing. Yeah. And not in a creepy way, but <laughs> right, you know, right. In a more of a self-protective way. Correct. I had yeah. a friend, this, this guy is a little bit younger than me. And, and he was in a, he went through a mentorship program that, that I help out with. And he reminded me the other day that there was a point in time where he was 
telling his story in the in some painful pieces. And he said, you know, Charlton, you looked at me and you said, you know, we'll call him Joe. You know, Joe, you just um, told me these really painful stories like you're just told me what you had for lunch today. Yeah. And that now, as I look back, remember him looking at me like, I, I don't know what to do with what you just said, because as you, to your point, it, he had minimized these things in order to keep going, which for little kids is kind of like, well, my hat's off to you. You survived. You made it. Good job. Mm-hmm. But as you get older and become an adult, that doesn't fit anymore. You can't minimize that stuff and act like it wasn't a big deal. And so I think, as you said, to hear like to have someone point out, like, you know, you just told me a horrifically painful story, but you told it to me with almost no emotion, like you're reading a menu at a restaurant. I think that helped him realize like, wow, I'm not really giving this the proper weight that it should have. Correct. So, and then I think once he started to do that in his story, he started seeing a lot of change happening. Once he started to say like, no, that was a big deal. And this is how that affected me. This is how it made me view myself and other people. It's how it, this is how it affected my relationships. Then he could make changes. It was really, right. it was really good stuff. Yeah. I've, I've heard, um, I've heard clients tell me, um, on the backside, you know, we're getting ready to close down with the client and get some feedback for me. And they go, you know, one thing that really stood out to me is like, you gave me permission. And and I didn't, of course I didn't realize I was doing that, but in asking them to investigate that message, not, not just look at the event, but what, what did you internalize about yourself? You know, what did you think about yourself? And now as an adult, we can look at that and say, Hey, is that true? Is it accurate? Right. And that I didn't think about until my client said that they said, Mm -hmm. man, you you gave me permission. And then like you said, the snowball, Mm -hmm. now our thoughts are coming and more things start to surface because our brain, Mm -hmm. it's incredible, right? Mm -hmm. It goes, Oh, now we're processing. I'll give you some more material, right? Right. 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 <laughs> so along those lines, uh, you've done incredible work. Uh, so since 2006, is that correct? That you've yeah. entered, entered into the field? Yeah, that's when I got my degree. Um, and I wanted to give you just a few minutes to kind of, if you had a message for men, teenagers, people, people in general that mm-hmm. are struggling with anger, um, that really are in that desperate state. They feel like they can't get a control of it. Do you, I mean, do you have anything that you'd like to, to say to them? Yeah, I would say, don't be afraid to, to get help. Don't mm-hmm. be afraid to go and do therapy. Don't, it is not a sign of weakness to want to look at. Um, I've known some big, tough dudes like yourself who have, you know, done this work and, you know, and have shown that this is, this is not about weakness or a lack of, of strength. It's actually a a sign of strength that you're going to go and talk to someone and, 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 and and understand that when you do that work, it will benefit all the people around you that, that you care about. It's not just an investment in yourself. It's always an investment in other people. The more healthy you get, the more that's going to have a positive impact on the people around you. So just understand if, you know, if you're a, if you're a parent or a a, a husband or a wife that is, you know, is struggling with something, if you go get help, that's going to it's going to pay off for your whole family. Mm-hmm. It's going to pay off for your coworkers. It's going to pay off for your, if you're a leader, for your staff, um, it, it's going to, it's going to benefit so many others. And so, and, and don't ever think that your stuff is, 
the things that you're struggling with are insurmountable or bigger than anybody else's. I always tell my clients, good news, bad news. You're really normal, (laughs) right? Like you're really normal. You're normal in that you struggle with things, right? And um, I think so many people think, oh, my stuff is so bad, you know, and that's just not the case. We're all a work in progress. We're all trying to figure things out. We're all trying to, um, you know, we all have stuff that we need to work on and you never really stop. I've been a therapist now for been working with clients for 16 years and I still have stuff I have to work on. I still go see a therapist. Mm -hmm. So, um, I tell people a lot of times I don't trust a therapist that doesn't go to therapy. So, (laughs) you know, the work never really has to stop or should stop, you know? Um, So don't ever think that your stuff is too bad that you (laughs) can't go get help. You can always get help. Yeah, no, I appreciate that perspective. And and especially one, uh, one line in particular, the, the word bad. Um, So with emotions, and I know that anger is one of them because I've heard a lot of my clients Mm -hmm. apologize Mm -hmm. and, and they, they apologize like anger is this bad, evil emotion and, you know, happiness is a good emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's, and it, I mean, culturally, it's kind of what we were taught when we were kids, right? If we got angry, we were being bad. And, and that's one of those messages that especially men internalized, right? right? Right. Absolutely. And then I'm bad. And that starts driving the machine again. Absolutely. Um, so do you, can you speak to how you help clients kind of, um, take those two things apart? Cause an emotion's an emotion. Some are more sure. difficult and some are sure. easier, but yeah. And I mean, I try to, I'll often say like anger in and of itself is not bad. Mm-hmm. I think when anger moves into rage where you're trying to exact some sense of like, I want you know, I'm going to get my way or I want to kind of get some sort of almost like payback or I want to kind of the more destructive, yeah, side. the more yeah. destructive side. I think that's when it moves into being real dysfunctional, mm-hmm. but anger is not in and of itself bad. I don't like, that's why I'm starting to move away from saying anger. I'm like, you know, I don't know if we should say anger management. We should probably say rage management um, because I don't think anger, it, it kind of connotates that, that, that anger is a bad thing and it's not always bad. There's, there's, there are oftentimes in life reasons to be, you know, angry, but when, whenever you let an emotion completely, like if, if anger completely overtakes you and you're reacting purely out of anger, well, that, you know, that's, that's where you need to do some work. Um, but feeling anger, right. Feelings are, are not really good or bad. They just are. Right. Like it's, it's what you're experiencing. But I think when we let an emotion override and and shift our behavior into something that as you, like a great word you used is destructive or harmful, then we've got a problem, right? Then we can say, Hey, that's, that's not healthy. Um, So yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not in the business of trying to make anger a bad emotion, you know, because sometimes anger is justified. Yeah. And I, and once again, back to the root cause, you're not, you're not focusing on the anger. You're, you're trying to get to the inside of that right. circle. Yeah. 
that, that's what, you know, anger management, the term anger management always got them in the door, especially guys. Cause they were like, okay, well, you know, somebody says, why are you going to counsel guy anger, anger management that, you know what I mean? That can almost be somewhat like, okay, okay I, I get it, bro. But, but, but once we got in there, we did the deeper work. Right. But you know, yeah. And I appreciated how you were kind of uh, drawn the distinction between the two of anger management. Yeah. Um, and even the term right? yeah. that, that is uh, yeah. terms are powerful. Yeah. But it's always about getting to the root. Lots of times these things that we're experiencing are just symptoms of a, of a deeper, of a deeper uh, root cause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you moved here from Florida, right? Mm -hmm. To family care center. And did you just start as a clinician there or? So actually I worked when I first moved here to Colorado, I was in private practice for a little while. And then I, I actually worked for a large organization that worked primarily with Medicaid patients. And I started there as a clinician and then sort of over time, um, moved my way up through leadership and um, became a clinical director. So I was overseeing teams of therapists. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do now at Family Care Center is I oversee uh, the, the teams of therapists that are at our, you know, multiple locations here in Colorado. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how I wanted to wrap up the, the, the talk. Cause, um, a lot of clinicians and a lot of people come into this field and I've even joked about it myself. Right. Um, I'm, I'm in school, I'm becoming a therapist. Mm -hmm. And even before I'm out of school, I'm advocating and I'm so like, start putting on all these different hats. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was wondering if you could spend a few minutes and talk about what that's been like for you to have kind of other duties along with your clinical work and, and why you think it's important to be doing both. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, I don't think everybody is wired to even want to be, you know, in a leadership role. Some people are like, I just want to be a therapist for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that's great. I've got lots of friends in the field absolutely. and they absolutely just want to be a, a therapist. They just want to work with clients. I think I had a real desire to, to help um, build and train clinicians and develop clinical programs. I started seeing that aspect of it and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And, um, and I've really enjoyed that. I've really enjoyed, you know, having teams of, of supervisors that then are, you know, and working with them and, and, empowering and developing them, them to then go in and work with their teams of therapists. And so, I mean, I've, I can definitely tell you that being a therapist and having done my own work, I believe has helped me be a better leader. I don't think it's made me a perfect leader. That's for sure. I would never claim to be that, but it's definitely made me a better leader because you can't, you can't lead people if you don't, really understand how people work. I don't think you can really be a good leader if you don't understand that people are emotional beings. And, and so if, you know, if you're, if you're just treating people like, um, assets, so to speak, that's, that's not really going to amount to true leadership. I think true leadership is understanding, you know, what motivates people, what helps people feel empowered and, uh, valued and those kinds of things. And I think being a therapist and having that therapeutic training has definitely helped, helped me understand that better, obviously with people. So it's, it's been, a, I think it's been a great, um, they've been very complimentary to one another. So, yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. It's kind of like that age old saying of starting in the mailroom and working your way up in a particular industry. But this one is even more powerful because Mm -hmm. you're specifically being trained and working with others. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed it and in love and love the work that I get to do. Yeah. And so do you ever see yourself going fully into a leadership role? Are you always going to have that section of time for your clinical work? Yeah, it's really it's really hard to think about giving up the clinical work because I mean, in, in, you know, there were times in my previous role before I came to family care center where I didn't have clients. And I really always felt, you know, I always felt like something was missing. And then also, so I actually started seeing some clients because I, first of all, I was missing it. And second of all, I was like, well, I need to understand what clinicians are the work they're doing. If I'm going to be the leader, I think I need to be doing some of the work myself, just to, even to understand like, well, how, how, what's going on when you enter your notes in our electronic health record. Right. You know? So, I mean, that's one of the things I appreciate about Dr. Weber who started family care centers. He's still a practicing psychiatrist. He still sees clients mm-hmm. and still has a caseload. Now it's not as large as the caseloads he's had in the past, but he's still in the work. And I think that's, I really think it keeps you, um, tied to, to the mission. If you're actually doing some of the work that that's, that the, the organization is all about. So it'll be hard if I have, if I give it up at some point, maybe (laughs) who knows, it'll be, it'll be tough. I'll, I'll probably always kind of have the itch to, to want to. Yeah. Well, I mean, and if Dr. Weber can pull it off, I think you can too. (laughs) For sure. For sure. For sure. He's got way more on his plate than I do. Yeah. So, yeah. And and that's a really good point in this field. It's almost like, um, you know, I got family members that are in IT mm-hmm. and, and I swear every six months, everything we got is obsolete. You know? Right. So they're constantly learning and training and developing. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's exactly the same. Absolutely. Like keeping, our, keeping our finger on the heartbeat of the, the culture and Absolutely. what's going on. Absolutely. Um, because not only not only is the culture changing and shifting mm-hmm. and people are growing and developing, but so are the therapeutic approaches. Like we mentioned, Absolutely. the combination of all the things that we can offer this day and age compared to, I mean, what, 10 years ago. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. I don't think I would have understood the pandemic quite the way I do if I hadn't been working with teenagers through the entire thing. I don't, I don't think I would have, you know, every time I saw a story about the pandemic, I saw it a little bit different, I think, um, because of the, the teens I was working with than if I just hadn't had any clients during that time. So, yeah. And what, what is some of those lessons that maybe you can share with the community now that we're kind of coming back out, right? Yeah. Um, well, I just think the importance of, you know, I think, most teenagers are very social beings. And so understanding that that's not just, you know, kids, they, they, they really are. That is a big part of who they are is connecting with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, understanding that this pandemic did have an impact on them. You know, lots of times teenagers won't tell you what they're feeling. They're feeling a lot and they're not they, but they're not telling you. So asking good questions, I always encourage my parents to just ask good questions like, Hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What's going on these days? What, what's been hard? You know, what's been good? You know, um, I heard, I, well, there was a guy that said one time, I don't know who, I don't, I can't quote him his name, but he said, you can't have rules without relationship. And he was specifically talking to about teenagers. And so lots of times I think, you know, parents will sometimes we like drop 
we want to have rules, but we have to realize like you have to have relationship in order to have rules too. You, you, you can try to just drop a bunch of rules, but if the kid doesn't think you care, you know, um, they're not going to respond to, uh, to the authority. So I think just making sure that, you know, parents are, are pursuing their kids and trying to spend time with them to just kind of listen and let them be heard. And, you know, kind of like we talked about with therapy, it's like, there's it's we're not judging things we're just saying like tell me what's going on and look oh well what's that like you know and and stuff like that like trying to pursue their heart and who they are and just understand again i guess i go back to just understand that it i think it has had a profound impact on kids especially being you know sequestered in their homes and and not being able to connect with one another except through video games a lot of times i know my son kept up with his friends through video games i'd never been more thankful for video games in my life than when he was still able to talk with his buddies and they would connect with one another mm-hmm. through playing video games so i was kind of like well I, he he's got to be able to connect so. yeah yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because my my son, some of his friends have moved. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, if your friends moved, man, that, that was, was it. game like, over. <laughs> yeah. No you pun might, intended. You might bump into the person later in life and be like, wow, man, <laughs> right, I don't even what? recognize you. Yeah. Um, and, and that was one of the things because I was like, man, I struggle with video games. I right. never played them growing up. But I saw that communication piece and that staying connected piece. And right. I thought, man, that's that's pretty powerful. Yeah. So even as we were still moving around and settling in life, he was able to stay in touch with some of his friends. And still to this day, yeah. they all get together in groups and, and play those video games. Yeah, so. Talk about a difference in generations like that just wasn't available when I was a kid. Right. But that's a very real part of of young people's uh, experiences. They have friends that live in other states and that they're as tight with those friends as the friends that live down the street. So, yeah, pretty awesome. amazing. So, yeah, I mean, to wrap it all up, <laughs> I guess that's about it. That's all you got? I know. I uh, you, no, um, you burned through the questions no, no, quick. No, um, <laughs> as an add-on question, okay. um, what I thought of was uh, what can we look for in our teens? Mm-hmm. Okay. I need you to say that. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, same kind of thing coming out of the, yeah, uh, the uh, pandemic uh, uh, or... Yeah. Yeah. What, what can we look for in our team? Sure. Okay. You know, what, what do you foresee? Mm-hmm. All right. That, sure. That we need to mm-hmm. be cognizant of. That's just me as a parent going. Yeah. Yeah. What do I need to look for? Yeah. Like signs and stuff. Yes, but I need you to ask. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> gotcha. So, um, um, yeah, I really appreciate your perspective on that relationship and rules. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything that par- uh, anything else that parents can look for in their teens or kind of signs mm-hmm. that sure. teens are struggling? I know you said they start to isolate. They don't share. Right. Um, I definitely think if you see any major shifts in moods, I mean, you know, the thing is, is parents oftentimes will have a good gut that something is off, but they don't pay attention to it. So they think um, they're just a teenager. Well, if you're spidey sense is going off that something's going on with your kiddo talk to him about it don't ever pass by that or ignore that don't um don't ignore your your parental um instincts i think if again if you see them major shifts in their moods if they're usually a happy kid and talkative kid and all of a sudden they get real quiet and are really always spending time in their room you know go and talk to them about it um if you 
you know, if you see that they're all of a sudden it's like, whoa, they're really angry a lot and they're having angry outbursts. Don't just try to say, hey, knock it off. You, you're not going to act like this in this house, you know. It'd be like, hey, what what's going on? You seem really angry these days, and I'm trying to figure out like what what what's going on. It seems like a big change. Can we talk about that? You know, really, again, kind of like being a, a, a junior therapist, so to speak. It's like try to get at the root, try to get underneath. Don't just get don't get focused on the symptoms. You know, the behavior or the outbursts. Understand that your kids are a lot deeper than that, and they. And teenagers oftentimes, I think, struggle with even identifying their own emotions. Kids, kids have to be taught how to, how to identify emotions. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, they, they're still trying to figure out like, well, how do I communicate that in a way that's healthy? Right. So it's sometimes it's they're trying to communicate what they're feeling, but it's coming out kind of sideways. So I would say those are the things. Um, also, you know, um, you know, yeah, I, I think um, if you if you hear any talk whatsoever about I want to die, I wish I weren't alive, um, you know, never blow over that. Always address it. Always try to talk about it. Never let that go unexamined. Um, I think that's really important. Never, never never take that for, for granted, always give it weight and, and try to explore it. So, yeah, no. And, um, that's great insight, especially for all the parents out mm-hmm. there. And, and one thing I think if I could kind of package it up, right. And put a bow on it mm-hmm. would be, um, not being afraid to have that conversation. I've heard so many people be right. like, well, I don't know how to. And to your point, it's the relationship, right. sit down and be vulnerable and have a conversation right. and you can do it. Right. right. Yeah. And your kids are not expecting you to be perfect. Believe right. it or not, they, they'll actually probably be relieved that you're kind of a mess. Yeah. Right. They don't want, kids don't want perfect parents. Yeah. They don't want disengaged parents and they don't want uh, pretend behavior. They don't want a fake facade. They want, they, they want authenticity. Right. And so just be authentic and don't feel like you have to have it all figured out. Absolutely. Yeah. And getting down on their level and saying, Absolutely. Hey, I see you. Yep. I see you. And we're going to work through it together yeah. and yeah. do more listening than talking. Absolutely. Always do more listening than talking. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Charlton. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you drop us an email at all one word, militarymind at fccsprings.com. Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week, Invita. Invita connects people to their services that they need for a vibrant, fuller life. We are a local nonprofit that gives rides and provides in-home support for greater access and independent living. Invita's legacy for more than 50 years in transportation, particularly for those with disabilities, older adults, and low-income residents of El Paso County. Lately, we focus on rides for behavioral health and substance use disorder. Because there is such an increasing need, does Invita serve vets and their families? Yes, they do. Vets and family members may qualify for rides if they are dual eligible under Medicaid or older adults or have disabilities that inhibit their use of public transportation. Just give us a call to see if you qualify at 633-4677. And where does Invita go? 
and Vita services go above and beyond what public transportation can offer, often with door-through-door service. We take people to medical and health appointments, including dialysis, employment, education, day programs, and more. We schedule rides with Colorado Springs Metro Area, Monument, and even Teller County. East of Colorado Springs, we operate two deviates, fixed routes for the general public reaching Callahan via Woodman and Highway 24 and reaching Ellicott, Yoder, and Rush via Highway 94. Our buses come all the way into town and connect with major medical, grocery, and shopping centers and our in-town specialized transit. The public routes, bus stops, and times can be found at our website, www.envidacares.org, envidacares.org. What sets Envita apart? They partner with other agencies, both private and public, and they adapt and meet what the community needs. Since the pandemic started, we have added services that help homeless get to the city's isolation shelters. We are working with hospitals and handling discharges, and we have increased our efforts to help those with behavioral health and substance use disorders obtain treatment. In fact, that's why we have expanded to Teller County so that their residents can access medical and behavioral health services in Colorado Springs and beyond. Our drivers are sensitive and compassionate. They are trained in mental health, first aid, trauma-informed care, and Narcan, and several of our drivers are vets too. If you want to ride with Invita, give us a call for more information at 719-633-4677 or check us out at www.invitacares.org. Thanks for checking out the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. If you want to hear more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. And if you would like to find out more about Family Care Center, you can find them at fcsprings.com. The Family Care Center is the Pikes Peaks region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They prioritize you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care you need from the caring and highly skilled team at Family Care Center. So thank you for taking time to listen to the show. It would be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions that you may have or know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at FCC springs.com and there's a chance that we will discuss it on an upcoming show i would like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only while i am a therapist i am not your therapist if what we discuss on the this episode brings up any concerns for you it is highly recommended that you consult with a clinical mental health professional stay tuned for another great show next week until then Remember, you are not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF. And listen to the companion podcast on Podbean.
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.